Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're off! I'm trying not to be sick. And we're off. Um, uh, <laughs> Welcome to fan club. Um, uh, my, my name's Nick, Nick Helm. And this my is... name is Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've got a stomach bug, so I'm not leaving my house this week. Um, and uh, I, was, I was just sick just before we started recording. <laughs> um, so we'll see how we go. It's going to be fine. Got a great guest. It's going to be fine, yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Um, I tell you what, though, I have done lots of uh, content this week. Oh yeah. In terms of like, I've uh, absorbed lots of content this week. So uh, uh, don't worry, Nat. If uh, I need to pick up the slack, I've certainly got you covered. Um, uh, first rule. Hang on. First rule of fan club. <laughs> Tell your friends. This is obviously going to be a fit. <laughs> A vintage fan club. This is going to be the best one. Have you just given yourself a little ponytail? Well, I just pulled my hair back and it's gone, isn't it? It's like that. It could be. You could have a job in a comic shop in the 90s. <laughs> Not even the 90s. <laughs> Early 2000s. Your sound has gone. I can't hear you anymore. Oh, really? Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Okay. Um, so, uh, so you've gone back to... Uh, first one of fan club, tell your friends. Second one of fan club... Please, for the love of God, tell your friends. Do you know, usually that would have taken us five minutes. It's now uh, one minute past the hour. Uh, you're listening on Friday, the 7th of August. Um, we would be one week into the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Uh, nah. <laughs> Fucking. <laughs> I mean, what would be worse? What would have been worse? Had we gone into lockdown for like three months and then Edinburgh went ahead? And then everyone would have gone up with their shows that they'd written in lockdown, all about lockdown. I think now, you know, it will give us all a bit more. I think people will just rush to get them out. And I think now what we've got is we've got the benefit of a year. And either we come out of lockdown or we don't. But we're not all going to be right about lockdown. I think that that is, a, that is what I would hope. That's my That's, That is the hope, yeah. That is so much hope. So much is happening, like, politically and social, you know, kind of economic, social level at the moment that I think that, honestly, you're spoilt for choice for stuff to write an Edinburgh show about, you know. Oh, yeah, you don't want it. It will be, I think anyone that does, it will be a terrible show. You know. I think, you know, um, what it's, I think this is just basically encouraging, I mean, I've not written any material. Oh God, I feel I'm all right. I've not written any material, but like, um, is it? <coughs> but I think that maybe it just encourages. I'm very, I'm autobiographical when I write, so I find it all a bit difficult. But um, I know I don't want to write a show about lockdown because if I wanted to write a show about lockdown, I'm pretty sure I'd have written it by now if it was in me. Um, but there's so much happening in the world that I think that it encourages you to look out. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so it would have been one week into Edinburgh. 
It's Friday the 7th. It's just three minutes past the hour of 12, if you're listening live. Uh, we're pre-recording, obviously, at 1.30 on a Wednesday the 5th. So it's a little bit of a head fuck, but we're doing it. Um, you know what else, Nick? If you're listening on a podcast, it could be any time you fucking want. Is that what you're going to say? No. Oh. I was going to say, if you listen to the podcast, it is technically show 100, except you didn't do one of them and I didn't do one of them. Which one, one didn't you do? I didn't do the one that you and Mark Simmons did where you interviewed the bloke who did the room. Tommy Wizow. Tommy Wizow. Um, does that count as a fan club? I think it counts as one of the podcasts. I don't think it counts as a fan club, though. Because I, I, I don't think it counts as a fan club because I thought we did like a mashup between his show and my show. If it was a fan club, you'd have been there. It's true. It's true. Right? Um, um, did I say my show? No, I don't think so. His show and our show. I'm, I mean, not only am I being sick out of both ends, but I, um, <laughs> I'm not sleeping. Uh, <laughs> being sick out of both ends uh, is uh, technically called Catherine wheeling. So just, just, to, just to be factual. But it's all right. I'm in my house. It's fine. It's a pre-record. We, could, <laughs> we have music breaks. Yeah, we'll have some music breaks. Don't worry. Quite weak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about my uh, physical health, not the material. So maybe um, next week will be our 100th. I think I don't. I don't think we count the Tommy Wiseau episode because you weren't there, and you never had the option of being there. It was. It was. It was early in the days, and I think we would cross promoting two different shows. And then the one I wasn't there was when you did it with Haley, right? Yeah. And that counts. Okay. I don't know why I wasn't there. Was I ill or was I... You, were, you had to um, rehearse I Think You Stink. It was about a year ago, wasn't it? It was just before I ended last year. Maybe, yeah. And I was doing rehearsals for I Think You Stink. Yeah. yeah. I remember I was very sort of like, uh, oh, I wonder how the show's gone without me. Did they, <laughs> did they manage to get it on air? And it was like, yeah, it's one of the better ones, actually. I was like, all right, okay. So uh, next... Next uh, week, we'll be celebrating 99 episodes of shit and one really good one with Hayley Campbell. (laughs) 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 Um, uh, So, yeah, I love... I I don't know, really. I I love... um, What would we do without this show? I'm not just talking about me and you, Nat. I'm talking about the world in general. What would the world do without this show? What What would society do without this show? I don't know. I think I think during these lockdown times, we've been like a constant source of good for the world. Except for those first, you know, few weeks when uh, we weren't broadcasting during lockdown. That's right. And is it a coincidence that that was when everyone went mental over toilet paper? <laughs> I don't think so. I think we've proven what happens when, when this show goes off air. The yeah. world goes into absolute annihilation yeah we could look at it another way and say that since we started doing this show the world has gone to shit um, I think that's a very that. negative way of looking at that <laughs> yeah. I think and I think that do you know what this show was an instant smash I think the world would have gone to shit a lot quicker had uh, had had it been the fault of this show 2018 we started March I don't want to talk about uh, it. 
I feel like I feel like it was I feel like it was such a yeah because fucking I did my I think you stink tenth anniversary at the Pleasance. Mm-hmm. Remember? Yeah, in that October. And that was that was 2018. Oh my god! It's just you just turn up every week and and before you know it, your life's over. Mm. Oh god! Amazing. Which has become national treasures. That's where we are. We're we're like Attenborough. Or Michael Palin or something. We like the Attenboroughs. <laughs> Roger and Ian. <laughs> fingers crossed. Uh, fingers crossed we'll make the New Year's Honours list. Is that a thing still? I think so. Have we dismantled the monarchy? No, no, we've still got New Year's Honours. Singy just got one, didn't he? Captain Tom. Captain the old man Tom. walked around the garden. He got a... Uh, walked around the garden. He got, he got a knighthood. Yeah, which is... Um, uh, did he do that during lockdown? Yeah, I think so. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. How many people tried to sort of like uh, do that as well? Tried to copy it. Yeah. I know there's an old woman who started going up and down stairs, but she didn't get as much press. It's like um, uh, George Michael winning a Grammy and then you trying to get a Grammy for burning his CD. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like he didn't. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't your idea. <laughs> um, but sure, that's fine. I don't mind. You know, I'm not feeling my best. Anyway, so... Oh, 100. Episode, well, episode 99. Episode 99, that's a good, good number, though. So, I, th- I think... Do you think? I think. I think it's 99. What are we going to do for a 100th? Same thing. Pretty let's do it. Same. Let's do it outside of. Let's break lockdown rules and do it in a foreign country. <laughs> I don't think that is breaking lockdown rules now, is it? Well, in some countries we can't go to, or if we come back, we have to be locked down for another fourteen days or something. Well, we just make sure we go to one of those that are in the uh, in the in the bubble. Yeah, maybe we can do that. Maybe we can have a a foreign a foreign holiday uh, seaside special fan club. What's what's one hundred represent? Centenary. Uh, what could? I don't even know how many hours it is. How many one hours did we do, and how many two hours did we? God, yeah, we've probably done about three hundred yeah. hours. Yeah, wow. but we haven't because we did two hours for like. I think it was. Uh, I mean, this is me like basically saying, "Oh, it's amazing, isn't it?" That um, that. Fucking hell, we did like, we did like f- 10 one-hour episodes and then we realised we could do two hours. And then if anyone's listening for the first time and heard the first 10 minutes of this, it's literally, it's one man trying not to throw up on air <laughs> and another man with a self-made ponytail trying to remember things. I haven't, I haven't been able to, well, you can get your hair cut now. I'm still slightly fearful of getting a haircut. Why? Is it the scissors? Yeah. <laughs> is it? Because <laughs> you watched Sweeney Todd once when you were too young. So I think it feels weird having a mask where you wear your mask and you get your hair cut. I don't know. And also it just feels like I don't need to get it cut, so I might as well just let it grow long. My mum My mum was really nervous about it and she had her hair cut a couple of weeks ago. I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, it's fine. I don't I, know, I just feel like I don't need to. I've got have some lovely long hair for a bit. It looks really long. I mean, my hair, I washed my hair the other day and um, 
uh, I, I, I hadn't realised how much natural grease had got into it to make it kind of like look lived in. But my hair does not suit being clean. So right. I, I just wear a hat all the time now. It's just too, it's too long, you know. My, the last time I got my hair cut was when my ex came around and cut my hair just before lockdown. Oh, so I don't really, I don't really want to have my hair recut because I'm keeping the memory alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what have you been? What have you been a fan of this week, Nathaniel? What have I watched? I've seen a few films. I saw, I'll tell you what I saw. I saw the film Dress to Kill, Brian De Palma film. Oh, I've right. watched all the De Palma films. So you're, I, trying to watch, you're trying to watch all the De Palma films, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I'm up to Dress to Kill. Oh, you're doing chronologically? I have been, but um, I've watched Carrie a few weeks ago and I might watch that again because I'm quite fancy watching it again. But what, what? You watched it a few weeks ago and you want to watch it again? Yeah. Well, because you just keep thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I might, I might go back to that. Standards. You used to watch a film and then watch it again. That's what used to happen. Um, I watched a film that I feel very similar to, but it's, it's not Carrie. But um, uh, so, what directly preceded Dress to Kill? Uh, just before Dress to Kill was at home movies. I suppose okay. that comedy right. film he did. All right. So let's um, so take us through. Uh, I don't want like a big review of it, but just list them all the way up to Dress to Kill. Right. So you got. Um, Murder a la Mod, I think, is the first one. Never seen it. like a sort of uh, quite sort of French new wavy, but it is like a murder mystery thing. It is quite similar to stuff he does anyway. Then I think you've got Greetings. Then you've got uh, something in between. The Wedding Party, which is another one he sort of made. De Niro. De Niro again. Then he did Hey Mom. Nero. And that's 70. Then he did... I feel like I've missed something. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise 74. So before that he did... Sisters? Sisters. Sisters. Then Phantom of the Paradise... Uh, Carrie. Oh, Obsession, I think. Carrie. Uh, um... What would be after that? After Carrier 76, 77, 78 would be... Have you watched them? Yeah, I've been watching them all. Just remember what you watched. Come on. You can... (laughs) (laughs) The Fury. The Fury. You did. You did as well. You did bloody watch that, I remember. (laughs) The Fury, then Dress to Kill. Then Home Movies, then Dress to Kill. Okay, right. Okay, hang on, hang on. So where are we? So, yeah. So, so, okay. Murder Alamod, Greetings, Wedding Party. Uh, Dionysus in 69? Oh, I did what, that's, um, that's a weird, uh, there's a couple of like short films like that, but they're essentially like short documentaries. Oh, right. Okay. right. Yeah. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't say it's a short on IMDb. I think that one's like a, um, a documentary about a concert thing. Right, diagnosis, right, okay. Uh, then he went, hi, mum, uh, get to know your rabbit, is that a short? Oh, no, that's a feature I haven't, I've never seen that, couldn't get that. <clears throat> okay, so it went, sisters, Phantom of the Paradise, Obsession, Carrie, The Fury, Home Movies, 
dress to kill. All right, now, do you know what treat you have in store for you coming up next? Yes, I do. Uh, Carrie. Um, <laughs> no, blow out. Blow out. Uh, Blowout is next, so I'm I, looking forward to that. I say it every time we've talked about him. It's my favorite. It's my absolute favorite. I love it so much. Uh, but, but I think a large part of that is um, it's got John Lithgow in it, but also Nancy Allen. And I, I forget how much I love Nancy Allen, and then I, I just think she's brilliant in everything. Yeah, it's true. She is great. And to think of her like in Robocop, which is kind of getting on for a decade later, and it's like. She hasn't aged like a day, really. I no. suppose in Carrie, she probably she probably is actually close to being teenage, but she really is like she is great in all of them. Um, there's a um, dress to kill I hadn't seen in ages and ages. The last time I saw it was on TV, but I hadn't watched it in a long, long time. And there's lots about it which wouldn't really like that stated in terms of sexual politics and things. But yeah. it's absolutely brilliant. Well, it's a guy that that dresses up as a woman. Yeah. And it's played for absolute shock value. Yes. Just like, how outrageous is this film? And you kind of like go, sure. So you've got to enter into it in sort of like um, a hyperbolic uh, sort of state that it was made in. And it's kind of like, oh, my God, this film is absolutely fucking shocking and outrageous. It's just sort of like, basically, De Palma um, extending... He's sort of like... Um, he's developing themes that basically Hitchcock started. Mm. And he's kind of like going, right, well, Psycho was like an absolute... Uh, push boundaries in in nineteen sixty, and so I'm going to sort of like try and push boundaries twenty years later and do take that. I'm, it's like a relay race, and I'm taking that and I'm pushing it even further. And now we've got to the stage where it's just kind of like, actually, that uh, <laughs> that's not how we do things anymore. So yeah, it's funny. It's sort of in some ways that makes it sort of date more, but it's it's so <laughs> well put together. Like it's so. Like, it really feels like you're dealing with someone who, at that point, is a real master, really knows what he's doing, how every scene and everything that's happening in the background, in the foreground, is all important. It's really, it's just really well done and really creepy. And I think, I think, I, but it is really creepy. It's, I, think, I, I think his films are incredible. Um, but just talking about kind of like things being a, a product of their time. You know, um, I thought I, I listened to David Niven's uh, autobiography on YouTube this week. Uh, he's got two. I listened to his second one, and then I was listening to his first. His first one was about him, and then his second one is basically just he's just basically telling quite gossipy, bitchy stories about Hollywood. And growing up, and um, it's sort of, and he's narrating them himself. So it's David Niven's sort of book. He's read by David Niven. I think he wrote them in like seventy, and he's narrating them in like eighty. Um, and he's kind of like, he's not. It's, it's weird. Sometimes he's not even leaning into the microphone, and then he'll be talking, and you go, he's got such an amazing accent and such a wonderful British voice, and you know. 
he was such a charming gentleman and then all of a sudden he will say something which is horrific and you go oh oh god and then it was and then it sort of drags you out and then but he was sort of i don't know it's a product of its time as long as you yeah as long as you're listening to something or watching something and you're aware of when it was made and who made it i think that you should be able to navigate yourself through most things so i don't really find stuff that was made before i was born that don't share the same politics as me. I don't find them offensive. I'm just sort of like contextualising them and going, I see, obviously it's kind of like I'm not someone that would have been offended by it in the first place, being a white straight guy. But, you know, I just think that you have to contextualise these things, otherwise you could end up banning everything. I don't yeah. know. But, um, but with Dress to Kill, certainly, that's kind of like dealing with kind of cross-dressing and all this other stuff, and it's kind of... I think there's a there's a shame to it, though, where it kind of... I think it overwrites what the film is slightly, so it feels like it's become like a little scene film, whereas actually it's really well done, and it's really yeah. impressive. And it's oh, it's brilliant. Well, I just remember I got, like... What did I get? I got... Um, Sisters, The Fury, Dressed to Kill, and Body Double for Christmas a couple of years ago. And I think they're all actually quite spread out. Mm. Uh, Sisters, 72, Obsession, 76, Dressed to Kill, 80, and Body Double, 84. Um, yeah, they're all like four years apart from each other. But they're, they're not his... Like, he did like his big ones in between those, you know? So in between those... He did Phantom of the Paradise, Carrie, uh, Blowout, Scarface. You know, it's kind of like, he did like, and then after that he did, um, I've never seen Wise Guys. Is that Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds? No, that's... Um, Kurt Douglas. Kurt Douglas and Burt Lancaster, is it? Or? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds? City Heat. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um and then, uh, and then he did Untouchables. But um, so, yeah, he was doing like these big ones in between. But I think those four films, you know, uh, Sisters, uh, Obsession, Dress to Kill, and Body Double, they're kind of, they're all throwbacks. They all feel like they they could have been made back to back from each other before mm. he started branching out and doing different things. But it's it, you know, they're all sort of like Hitchcock. Um, uh, throwbacks, you know, he even got Bernard Herrmann to do the the music for Sisters mm. and the Obsession, I think. Um, like so. It's kind of like, so he was doing like these Hitchcock throwbacks and then he'd do something like The Phantom of the Paradise and then he, which was what? It was Rocky Horror before Rocky Horror, really. I mean, if you, I mean, it feels like Rocky Horror Picture Show was really, the the, the movie was, which is the picture show, isn't it? Um, was really influenced by Phantom of the Paradise, but then I think the musical came beforehand, so I think it was one of those things where influenced uh, each other, yeah, yeah. They kind of like it was like tag, um, but yeah. So, uh, Jessica stars Michael Caine, Michael Caine, Nancy Allen, yes, Andrew Dickinson, who Andrew Dickinson, who is. The... Does she play the blonde woman at the beginning? Yes, yeah. Fine. Right, okay, fine. Uh, Keith Gordon. Oh, wow, well, yeah, Keith Gordon. Keith Gordon plays Angie Dickinson's son. That's right, yeah. He's also in home movies playing virtually the same character, who's like a sort of little avatar for De Palma, I think. 
Keith Gordon had a really weird little career, didn't he? He was sort of yeah. like, he was in, uh, he was in Christine, John Carpenter's Christine. Mm -hmm. uh, he was in um, uh, Jaws 2, Jaws 2. Uh, he was in this. Oh, okay, right, I'm just going to click on him. And he's now become like a director. Yeah, and it, well, apparently on Jaws 2, I think he sort of like saw the limit of what he could do as an actor. And, yeah. um, and then on Jaws 2, he was just basically just hung around the film crew and he just... Uh, it's his first big film, Jaws 2. He's been the whole time kind of like uh, asking how all, of the, how all of the cameras worked and how the lenses worked. Uh, back to school! Oh, my God! The um, Rodney Dangerfield movie, Back to School. He's not Rodney Dangerfield's son, is he? I don't remember him. I don't remember him in it. Oh, my God, he's Rodney Dangerfield's son in Back to School. That's fucking crazy. I thought, because Keith... Um, what's his name again? David Keith? Gordon. Keith Gordon. Keith Gordon. I, yeah. An, isn't there an actor called David Keith? Yes. And then there's yeah. also Keith David. Yes. And Keith <laughs> David, Keith David was in The Thing, right? Yeah. And Keith David is fucking wicked. I think I saw him at an airport in America once, a uh, changeover, right? <laughs> we, me, me and my ex were sat in, we, weren't, we were going out at the time. This is like five or six or seven years ago. And I always just think, if I had gone over to him and said, excuse me, Keith David, and it was Keith David. Do you think he would have been? Do you think he would have signed something for me, or would he have had a photo? I don't know. This is a I little bit. It's, like... always, it's always a bad thing to think about. I never approach people. I think I once saw Kurtwood Smith from RoboCop on the South Bank, right. and it was like it was his double if it wasn't him. And I was so like, it must be because no one else looks that much like him. Yeah, and maybe it was. But, like, I never, I never want to go up. Because also, like, I never know what the reaction will be. And I don't want to yeah. go up to someone and then have them tell me to fuck off or something. <laughs> well, I swear blind it was Keith, it was Keith David. And I was just like, oh, God. And I was, and I was looking over at him and I was thinking, that looks like uh, the guy at the thing. Uh, I mean, didn't even mean to mention it this week. <laughs> uh, he's also in lots of other stuff. He's in uh, They Live. Um, yeah, on They Live, yeah. Yeah, uh, and isn't he in something about Mary as well? He might be. I'm just gonna look him up. Um, yeah, fucking hell! I really want to go over and, and tell. But it's like when I was growing up, I swore blind that the woman in um, uh, that played Jeremy Irons' sort of girlfriend in Die Hard with a Vengeance, and that was oh, yeah. also that, the blonde um, woman. Yeah, the blonde woman. But she's also plays kind of like a carnival woman in Batman Returns. Oh yeah. I thought that I swore blind that that was Demi Moore. And then years later, you, you watch it and you go, "It doesn't actually look anything like Demi Moore." <laughs> but it's kind of like it's weird how your brain tricks you. And with Keith David, it was just kind of like I mean, I saw blind it was Keith David, and then it's kind of like, well, maybe it's not. Maybe years later, you go, well, maybe I was mistaken. There was a bit, I was watching a special but I would love to meet Keith David. And then Nat Natalie, if you've not switched off, because this is a very loose, relaxed conversation this week. But Natalie, if you've not switched off, please just try and book Keith David. 
Keith Taylor. You can ask him if he was at that airport. But we're actually talking about Keith Gordon right now. Um, he stop, would play. Stop taking us off the subject, Natalie. He would play two characters. He would play like a nerd, mm-hmm. or he would sort of play kind of like um, a guy that thinks he's really cool that um, <laughs> really has no right to. <laughs> what was the film I watched? It was called. Um, uh, I was watching Police Academy, and what was this one called? It was called Combat Combat Academy. But I think here it's called Combat High. It was part of like this four-part... Yeah, it says it's a TV movie. Watch this film called Combat Academy, where he's playing, like, the cool sort of Mahoney prankster in this... And you go, no, 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 no. Uh, it's Keith Gordon. He's playing the nerdy guy from Jaws 2, from uh, Christine. Well, basically, in Christine, he does like a combo of the two, where <clears throat> he starts off as a nerd, and then he gets a really cool car, and the car makes him cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, Keith, <laughs> he's in this film called Combat Academy, which is basically him, Keith Gordon, being Mahoney. He's going around pranking... The uh, the real kind of like um, uh, <laughs> the military dorks uh, like George Clooney and George Clooney's got like his early part in, in Combat Academy. You must be like, why haven't I even got your part? Why haven't I got your part? It's like you go, surely just swap them, right? <laughs> or 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 don't put Keith Gordon in it. But like, yeah, it's just George Clooney in sort of like. Around his attack of the killer tomato, return of the killer tomatoes phase, where he's kind of like uh, got like a secondary role in it, where he's playing like this real kind of like asshole who is bully, who's basically bullying the, the new recruits, and then you know through a series of lessons he learns not to do that, and by the end of it, spoiler alert, George Clooney actually turns out to be one of the good guys. Not such a bad guy after all. So he's not really a Captain Harris character from Police Academy, but he sort of like starts off that way. Or like Captain Harris's underlings, who go off and do all of his bidding for him. Um, yeah, right. Okay, cool. So if you don't know who... I mean, I, I assume people are at home Googling along with us. <laughs> We're talking about Keith Gordon. Someone will be. Someone will be. Let's get Keith Gordon on. Let's yeah. Try- Let's get Keith Gordon on. Why not? I mean, he directed the TV series Fargo, Homeland, Better Call Saul, Nurse Jackie, you know, The Bridge, that was a big one, Dexter, The Killing. I mean, he's directed fucking loads. Loads of TV. Waking the Dead, Homicide, Life on the Streets. Great show. And, of course, he started his career directing uh, the movie The Chocolate War. (laughs) But he's also in Dexter, so maybe... Do you know what? So I was watching fucking... Um, uh, What's that series? The Sinner. Yeah. And two episodes in the middle of the third series were directed by Andrew McCarthy. Yeah, he's also he's also a big sort of TV director now. Yeah, I know. Like, when it came up, I was like, not the Andrew McCarthy. And I phoned up my mum, and she said... And you never guess what, because I told my mum to watch The Sinner, so my mum watched it, and uh, she said, oh, I was watching The Sinner. And she, you never guess who, who directed so many episodes of The Sinner. And I said, 
Is it Andrew McCarthy? She said, yes. It's not the Andrew McCarthy. I think that might be just a phrase that we have in our house where you go, not the Andrew McCarthy. It's always about Andrew McCarthy, funnily enough. Um, obviously, Andrew McCarthy was the star of uh, St. Elmo's Fire, Mannequin, uh, Pretty in Pink, and Weekend at Bernie's. Andrew McCarthy um, later went on to be in Kingdom Hospital. Uh, my sister had, was so in love with Andrew McCarthy, so I know slightly more about Andrew McCarthy than I really need to. He was also in a film called, uh, it was called Year of the Gun, uh, and then he sort of like went away from doing all that stuff. And then he was directing, um, he started like a new, he's a photographer, and then he started up a secondary career as like a director, but I guess that's what he was sort of aiming towards. Um, and he was directing The Blacklist, uh, and you think, what, Andrew McCarthy's directing The Sinner? So Andrew McCarthy was directing a series called Blacklist, which starred James Spader. And obviously, James Spader played Andrew McCarthy's nemesis in both Mannequin and Pretty in Pink. And then all of a sudden, everything makes a lot more sense. That's uh, fan club. That's fan club. James Spader would have gone... Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, let's get my old mate Andrew McCarthy on to direct Blacklist. And then Andrew McCarthy would have come on and they would have like gone, what have you been doing for the last 30 years? Well, I've just been doing like stuff like Lincoln and working with Spielberg and stuff. What have you been doing? Well, I've been doing photography and uh, learning how to direct and then I've teamed up. And now he's directing absolutely amazing episodes of The Sinner. Like I told you that episode six fell apart for me and I really thought episode six of series three of The Sinner... And it's very rare that you can actually pick out an... Well, for me, it's quite rare that you can pick out an episode of, like, a long-running TV series and go, that is an absolute stinker. But episode six was awful. And Andrew McCarthy was nowhere near it. He'd washed his hands by that point. So it made, me feel, it made me feel delighted that he was doing it. Good for him. I like him. I've got a lot of time for him. Loved him. Loved him. Uh, I was watching the special features on Dress to Kill. And uh, one of them is Nancy Allen talking about one of the last scenes in the film. She tries to seduce the Michael Caine character in order to gain access to his office in his files. And so she goes to his office wearing like a raincoat and underneath the raincoat, she's just got kind of stockings and suspenders on. And it's sort of filmed in reverse shots. And she was saying that she, she at the time was married to the director, Brian De Palma. And she was saying that usually she doesn't really have a problem with nude scenes because they sort of empty the set and they, they usually have like a really skeleton uh, crew there so she kind of does feel fine and because her husband's directing she sort of feels quite safe doesn't feel odd about it and she was saying that this was sort of worse because she was essentially naked but wearing sort of stockings and suspenders and felt a bit wasn't sure about it but the whole crew were there because it wasn't technically like a nude scene and so she felt a bit funny about it and Michael Caine uh, had shot all his side of uh, the shots. And because Michael Caine at the time was a big star, um, they said, right, um, okay, we've got all your stuff, Michael, from this scene. I'm just going to do the reverse shots now, and you can go back to your trailer. And she was saying, Michael Caine was so nice that he stayed to watch my scene so I could play opposite him, even though he wasn't on camera. And he started going, or did he? Just go, we're just going to do the reverse shots now. We take your raincoat off and you're just going to sit opposite me in stockings and suspenders. And Michael Caine said, oh, I'll stick around. No, no, I don't mind. I'll stick around. I'll help the scene. I don't mind reading in. I don't mind reading in. 
Are you sure you don't want to go back to your trailer, Michael? You've got... There's one of the other, there's one of the other actors that's playing like a cop and he's like going, uh, can you stick around for my... No, I'm busy. i got a thing. i got a thing to do. I'm free now, though. <laughs> I'd, I'd a lecture at university like that. Fucking creep. Um, whereas you look, at, you look at an absolute bloody gentleman like Paul Verhoeven and uh, the nude scene in uh, Starship Troopers where they're all in the shower... And there were all these young actors, and they were like, oh, I feel a bit uncomfortable having to do a new scene. And he goes, don't worry, I'm going to take off all my trousers, too. <laughs> and so, so uh, Paul Verhoeven just was naked when he filmed the... Uh, <laughs> when he filmed the shower scene at Starship Troopers to make everyone feel comfortable, he just got, he got naked. <laughs> you know, I, I think that, you know... The intent, the intent behind that was absolutely noble, but I think that you probably couldn't get away with it today. I think if you're like, whoa, hang on a minute, the director did what? <laughs> um, we've got to play a song now, but I'm certainly not through talking about Brian De Palma with you, Nathaniel. Uh, <laughs> It's I been know. 300 hours so far. We might as well keep going. Uh, all right, play the song. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Um, we're back. Um, uh, uh, one of us went for toilet break, and the other one wishes they did. So, <laughs> here we are. Um, I, I thought it was really funny. When you got up out of your chair, uh, you can just see um, that um, that Halloween poster, the John Carpenter poster yes. right behind you. If you put it up, or is it leaning against the floor? Leaning against... Well, it's leaning against a box. On, it's on top of a box. I need to put it up properly and get it properly strung. It's just leaning at the minute. I didn't realise you had it there, and me and Natalie were saying that... Um, We've had two guests. I think it was Johnny. We think it was Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Brister, and Jen Vegas. And uh, they both said that they looked like you were in a hostage situation because of your sparsely decorated room that you're in. Lots of stuff about, but it's all like the rest of it's sort of a mess that you can't see. Sure. Or, um, and I also and used to, of course, have the clothes horse that was criticised. Yeah, we criticised it. We punked it pretty bad. I don't, think yeah. what, I don't think that's what punk is, but... But it felt like, yeah, it does look a bit messy, doesn't it? So I've tried to make it look nice for the the people. So I've had, like, sort of... I've moved things around, so... Sure. But when you... It, it does look like you're in an empty room, except for when you get up, uh, and then you just see this John Carpenter design. But because you put it at an angle where there's no writing on it, uh, it just looks like you've got a gun target in your room. <laughs> the poster is of, <laughs> it's like one of them uh, gun training uh, body cutouts that you have in um, <laughs> a rifle range uh, a rifle range uh, where it's like a human body uh, with sort of like numbers on it and stuff yeah. and that's what it is but <laughs> it's the only thing that's in your entire room it looks like you look yeah anyway oh, are you right mate <laughs> yeah. It's like we're going to go on a spree killing. You're right, mate. Uh, hang in there. Um, so what were we talking about? We were talking about... 
Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill. Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill. Um, yeah, great. That is a that is a really good film. I'm. I just think that Dressed to those. Uh, I Dressed to Kill is good. I feel like um, it is. I think it feels like very much a very much a product of its time, like Body Double as well. Yeah. Body Double is this fucking wicked film, which was all about kind of like this sort of um, seedy uh, sexual underworld of Los Angeles. Um, and there's a scene in it where he goes to... Is Nancy Allen in that as well? No. No. It's not. It's, it's Melanie Griffith. Griffith. Yeah. You know, what I've, you know, Dakota Johnson? Yeah. That's Melanie Griffith's daughter. Is it really? It's Don Johnson's daughter. And it's like, so... Um, I watched the thing where she was on the Ellen show this week and it was just this really awkward, um, like one of the most awkward conversations I've ever had, uh, I've ever had, I've ever seen, <laughs> I've ever been a part of. Um, yeah, it was just really awkward. And I was just like, who is Dakota Johnson? And obviously she's in, obviously she's in Suspiria and the 50, I thought she was great in Suspiria as well. She is, I, I'd have really, because she's from, yeah, Fifty Shades of Grey, isn't she? And I'd always just sort of dismissed her slightly. And I saw her in Suspiria, and I was like, oh, she's brilliant. She's, yeah. she's fantastic. I thought, yeah, I thought she was brilliant. And then it's sort of, I don't know anything about where she's from. or And then I looked at her, and it's kind of like, I think someone was analysing the interview, and they were basically saying, uh, well, obviously, she's slightly different from most guests because of her heritage. And you go, what's her heritage? And it's just like, well, Melanie Griffith and Don Johnson, but also Tippi Hedren's granddaughter mm. so she goes back like generations in hollywood so it's kind of like she goes up to interviews and it's just kind of like this can go badly it's it's not actually going to affect you know doesn't the pressure's on you mm. because i've been here i'm entitled i'm she's in, you know entitled i've been entitled to be here because of my grandma and all the other stuff it's kind of like, interesting i never really I didn't, really, I didn't really get it, but, yeah, I mean, I thought she was really great as a spirit. Anyway, Melanie Griffith is the woman in um, Body Double. Uh, Body Double. And so Body Double's like, it's really interesting. I, I feel like that and Dress to Kill, they're incredibly stylish. And when you look at other films that were made at the same time, they feel like they're in a different time zone. When you look at there was films like E.T., and Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, that were all made around 1980. Um, Empire Strikes Back. And then you look at um, Dress to Kill. It feels like a different time. It feels like you're watching it through, like, a fog. Um, yeah. And uh, when you look at, like, if that was 1984, so uh, if the other one was 1984, Body Double was 84, so it's like Ghostbusters... Terminator, Back to the Future was made the next year. These all feel like tangible films. They feel like um, they don't feel like experimental in any way. They feel like mainstream, big budget mm -hmm. Hollywood movies, but also just films that kind of like um, it's not a million miles away to see them in the same universe that we're in today. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that's how they've made films for the last 35, 40 years. And then you look at Body Double and it's this fucking lurid, gaudy, brightly coloured, 
It's Not soft focus, but aesthetically, it looks more eighties than films like Ghostbusters. You sort of forget. You go, actually, this looks like the nineteen eighties. This looks than... maybe this looks like it was made in the eighties, but the other ones feel more like eighties films. I don't know. It's just sort of like it's such this odd film, and then they stop everything halfway through, and they do a uh, Frankie says relax music video, and it's just and it's incredible. Isn't the whole thing in slow motion, and it goes through this gay club. Yeah, it's always Holly Johnson from Frank Goes Hollywood leads him round, and then the whole film turns into a Frankie Goes Hollywood relax video for five minutes. And it's and, and it's incredible. It's like it's like incredible in a in a great way. It's just this. It's just this real interesting thing. But it's when I say it's a it's a gay club, it's basically a nineteen eighties heterosexual version of what a gay club was, <laughs> where it's all bondage and um, you know, and it's kind of like depicting it as this sort of like seedy underworld. There's loads of films that did it like that. Have you ever seen the film Cruising? Yeah, Cruising's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. That feels like it's more of a, that doesn't feel like it's, I think that was a film that was sort of slightly misunderstood where I think people saw it like that. But I think it's very much dealing with a subculture. It's not trying it's to- dealing with a specific, yeah, yeah, it's very specific, specific subculture. It's not like saying all clubs were like this. It's sort of like saying, this is what a specific, um, yeah, but I do think that, I, I mean, I watched it quite recently and it just, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, there's the merits of a film and then there's also, I just found it quite weird. I didn't, yeah, I can't remember if I, if I watched it all. I'm talking about it and I'm like going, did I, did I get to the end? Mm, I'm not sure. I think it's great. I think it's really good and really kind of, actually weirdly progressive, I think, for time. I think the, the idea is sort of that it isn't at all, but I think it seems kind of quite ahead of its time now mm. um yeah there's films like there's a there's a thing in raw deal where someone goes to a gay club in raw deal and that is a particularly i think uh in the arnold schwarzenegger movie raw deal yeah i think it's a real disgusting scene it's like the way that that gay club is depicted in that is I think unforgivable really it, yeah I think it's horrible I'm, I'm not even going to repeat it but there's a line in it which is definitely meant as um, a topical joke and I just think it's just unforgivable and I don't think it's a very good film anyway I think it's sort of um, I think it was made around the same time as Commando and Predator and it's definitely I would say a C movie it feels like it feels like it's the sort of film that they were making in the 70s. Um, it feels sort of like Walking Tall or something like that, like a 70s uh, film starring Joe Don Baker, but it's not, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. It just really... So I don't really watch it. I think the last time I saw it was maybe five or six years ago, and I was so sort of like disgusted with that one scene that I didn't, you know, that I, I've sort of like written it off any of my rewatch lists. Um, which is, yeah, but I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a loss to cinema. I think it's literally, it's not a very good film and then there's this horrible scene in it and you just like go, well, yeah, good, fuck you. Um, yeah, really weird. So I think that when you look at something like Cruising, it's trying to deal with it in actually kind of like a mature adult, uh, adult way. But also, it's straight people writing... Mm. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Writing and directing films that are depicting gay people. And I don't think that you would necessarily... I don't know, I'd be interested to know if there was sort of like... Um, 
you know, like a, a gay film festival and where the cruising would ever kind of like be added onto that list. I saw it. Yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I think it has, from what I was reading about it, I think it has sort of been reclaimed a bit in the last few years, I think, for that reason. But actually, it's quite unusual that <coughs> it actually does seem to depict quite, and also that it's such a small subculture. And it's one of the few things that's picked up quite a small subculture and made a whole movie around it. So sure. And it isn't being, it's not cliched or trying to be like piss takey. Uh, makes it stand out really and makes it different well like Brian well the thing about Brian De Palma is he's trying to push envelopes and he's trying to be lurid and he's trying to be kind of like um, crass and titillating and all this other stuff and so he's gone gay clubs and now he's gone like right and then he's taken everything gay that he can think of like uh, leather chaps (laughs) uh, 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 bondage, uh, Frankie goes to Hollywood, um, and he's put it all in like this sequence. And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's sort of absolutely, um, it's like it's 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 stunning filmmaking. But you also like go, it's like the opposite. It shares a lot of elements with cruising. Yeah. It's sort of like the opposite of what cruising was trying to do. Yeah, it's yeah. like literally like going, whoa, look at this. And then when you come like to, to uh, 2020, that's what's dated about it, where you go, um, cruising is sort of like a time capsule. I mean, this is what fan club's about. We are literally uh, putting together a conversation. It's, like it's like we're actually having a real conversation. Um, but like cruising is sort of like a time capsule of... Uh, what those sorts of clubs were like at that time, what those subculture of clubs were like at the time. Whereas um, Body Double is like a time capsule of what those values were of the filmmakers that were making films about it. And it kind of like, they're, they're, it's a similar subject matter, but they're just way off. <laughs> um, they're like polar... polar, polar yeah. and at no point do you think it's a criticism it's almost just no. it's trying to be like kind of decadent and trying to be like, yeah, this is what it's like, right? But I'm hip because I'm Brian De Palma, and it's just yeah. when you go, you're not that hip, not that. Hip. It doesn't feel like doesn't feel like you really had your finger on the pulse. It's like he's going, some of my best friends are gay. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm cool with it. Well, I've even put I've even put a few of them in a bloody film. Check it out. What is this too much for you? That's what it's like. That's yeah. what body double's like. Um, but it is, I think, it, I, but not even as a time capsule, just as a film. It's an amazing film. Yeah, it's well worth watching. I just, I don't want to have to watch every, like with Back to the Future and you realise the whole film's about his mum trying to fuck him. It's just kind of like, you don't want to have to like contextualise everything and go, well, it's all right if you watch it from the, I think yeah. you know, most people with enough sort of like perspective and intelligence on things can kind of like watch things and be able to put it in the context that it was made or intended. And some stuff will pass that test and some stuff won't pass that test. Like raw deal, you just like, no, that's a, but it was unacceptable five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, it was unacceptable almost the minute that got made. And you go, nah, that's kind of, it's, it's horrible. Um, so there you go. Um, what did I watch? I watched Pee Wee's Big Adventure this week. Oh yeah, I haven't seen that in years and years. It's just come out on Netflix. Oh, right. Um, it's, his, it's Tim Burton's best film, by far. 
it's absolutely fucking incredible. Like, just from beginning to end, he's it, Pee Wee Herman is one of those characters that is borderline annoying, but for me, he just never tips over into just being annoying. Yeah, I, yeah. Love he it. always just manages to draw it back, and it's always it, there's always sort of like a sweetness to what he's doing. He's sort of an unlikable character. He's really selfish. He can be mean spirited. Um, he uses people, uh, he, you know, but also he's he can be really sweet and um, he doesn't really seem to learn any lessons in the film. And the ones that he does are very slight. But um, but I just think. Is he, is he you, right? As in universe for, for everyone. And it's, it's um, at no point does it really feel like it's a kid's film, like it's talking down to you. There are some couple of like scary moments that are sort of maybe a bit too much for really young children. And there's a bit of kind of like humour in there where someone is listening into a conversation and it sounds like they're fucking. And... Um, and I'd never noticed that before. Um, but, yeah, I just think, in terms of kind of, like, storytelling, my biggest problem with Tim Burton, and I love Tim Burton, my, my biggest problem with Tim Burton is that as a, as a visualist, he's incredible. And as a storyteller, I always just feel like there's never enough plot or there's never enough focus on plot. So I would say that this, Edward's Hands and maybe Sweeney Todd are his three best films. Uh, maybe... People say Sleepy Hollow, but it's not a personal favourite of mine. I'd say the Batman films are totally unfocused. Beetlejuice is, like, just, like, this mess of ideas. I love it. I really, you know... But in terms of where he would go later on, I think Beetlejuice is, like... <clears throat> sort of, like, an indicator of where he's going to go, where there's not a plot. It's just literally a collection of just visuals and ideas and sight gags and stuff like that. Whereas Pee-wee's Big Adventure, a solid story, hung on this central character. It takes you from beginning to end, and by the end of it, it's incredibly satisfying. It's sweet, and it's, like, fun for the family. And no-one's really seen it, and um, it's just... It's, it's just Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Um, he made a sequel called Pee-wee's Big Holiday a couple of years ago, where he's like 63 now, and they basically CGI'd all the wrinkles off his face. Pee-wee's Big Holiday was fine. Um, There's a Pee-wee's Big Top, isn't there? Which is a big, circus one. Big Top Pee-wee, which um, is, uh, I think, is abysmal. But, um, but you know, um, I haven't seen that in a while. Um, but um, it's, it's, it's basically, it's not really a sequel. It's just another film with Pee-wee Herman. Mm. But Pee-wee's Big Adventure from 1984, um, same year as Ghostbusters and Terminator. Um, it's, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And if you haven't seen it, absolutely watch it. Right, we've got time for a few bits of fan mail, and then we are going to uh, go to a song and get our guest on. Uh, there is a format, I keep telling you. Hello, Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf. Have you heard the song Roland and the Headless Thompson Gunner by Warren Zevon? It feels very much from the same school as Mad Songs as the Young New Mexican Puppeteer, so you might enjoy it. Keep up the five-step family fun club. Fun club. What? See, finally, an actual fucking... suggestion. Can you write that down, please, Natalie, and, uh, and we might play it next week. Yeah, not Nick! Sorry, Nathaniel? I said, I'm not familiar with the song. Not familiar with the song at all. What is it, Thank you. 
People complain that we talk about John Carpenter every fucking week. What if, what have they ever fucking suggested to us? You know, maybe if they tried to broaden our horizons, we wouldn't be stuck in this perpetual loop of pop culture. Dear Nick and Nathaniel, finally watch Deep Red after your endless wanging on about it. And yes, it is superb. I told you, you know, you fucking fuck nuggets. Uh, I'd also recently watched Torture Garden and Grand Piano, so I have accidentally enjoyed a string of horror thrillers featuring a penis. I said penis? What? 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 Oh no, that was you. Featuring a pianist. Oh. Brackets, babe! Come on! Sorry, go on. A uh, string of. Uh, so I've accidentally enjoyed a string of horror thrillers featuring a pianist. I said pianist. What other thriller horrors featured musicians do you recommend? All the best. Wow. Um, the Phantom uh, of the Opera. <laughs> the Opera? Got an organ. Got a big organ. Oh. 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 Uh, is, uh, there's a pianist. There's a rather big organ. That's weird, isn't it? A dick with a dick? Yeah. A dick with a dick? That little ah, tap, like a little beer tap coming off I it. I think I've heard it all now. <laughs> a dick with a dick. Um, songs about, films with, about musicians. Thrillers about musicians. Uh, there's obviously Command Performance, the Die Hard at a Rock gig, uh, written by, starring and directed by Dolph Lundgren, where he plays a drummer that smokes uh, a biffer in uh, the toilets uh, just as it... <laughs> The gig gets overtaken by terrorists, and then he has to kill all the terrorists one by one uh, with a drumstick. Uh, and he, uh, there's one kill where he sticks a drumstick up the bad guy's nose and jams it up there, and it goes through his brain. Um, and it's really bad CGI. It's not a great film, but uh, that's the only film I can think of that's about a musician. Anyone? I can't think any. Uh, obviously, Prince of Darkness, directed by John Carpenter. Also stars Alice Cooper, because it was produced by yeah, Shep Gordon. Dear Nick and I, what's up? I recently watched the new Netflix talk about Indian arranged marriages and I found it really interesting. Have you watched it? What's your favourite Netflix documentary of 2020? Well, unfortunately, uh, although I do have Sky and access to Netflix now, um, the batteries in my remote control have now stopped working and I can't actually switch my TV on. So I'm back to YouTube on my laptop. Uh, and I'm just listening to audiobooks at the moment, but I'll give that a watch at some point, yeah. Yeah, I can't think of anything I've watched. I watched a Netflix documentary that was about a Polish sculptor that was absolutely fascinating, and I can't remember what it's called, but look it up. Look it up. Google it. Okay, just going to rush through the next uh, three. Good afternoon, or good evening. Don't know when you will read this. Uh, should I watch Four Lions or Gladiator? Thanks. Um... Four Lions. I Four mean, Lions. Gladiator's not very good. I'm not really a Gladiator fan. Yeah. Hey, Nick and Nat, I'm a long-time listener. Hey, Nick and Nat, I'm a long-time listener. First time, Mila. I've just watched The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Is it just me? Or oh, that film is actually whack. What do you think? I don't know what whack means anymore. Uh, I thought you were going to say wank. I've not seen it. I've not read the book. Mm. Uh, if whack means good, I wouldn't know. But it is, uh, what's his face, isn't it? Fincher. David Fincher. Hello! I've been catching up on some episodes and love the one with the gaffer Bilal. 
please have him on again soon. He was jokes. I'm thinking about going to the park as it's scorchy. I get a bit bored when I'm outside. Can you suggest a way to keep myself amused in a park, James? Listen to the other 159 episodes of Fan Club that we've put out there. I mean, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We'll, we'll keep churning them out if you keep listening to one, one in a while. Okay. Play that song and then we'll get our guest on. Wonderful. Okay. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. We are joined. Um, we're live from Camp Cove with pre-recorded on the Wednesday, but we're live on a Friday if you're listening. And then it's a podcast. My, you, I'm back in the studio. It's me, Nick Helm, and my trusty co-hosts. You're Metcalf. Say your name, mate. And then we are now joined <laughs> in the studio uh, by. Uh, a film critic and author of Be More Keanu, uh, James King. Uh, so, uh, what, what day is it? I'm completely lost. What day? What day? What day is it? <laughs> it's Wednesday, but this is Friday. Yeah. Today is uh, today is uh, what day is it today? Today is Friday. So your book came out uh, yesterday. It did. Yes, it came out yesterday. Um, how are you both? By the way, you're right. I'm very well. How are you, James? I'm very good. As you can see, I'm in a glamorous location. Uh, can you guess the chain, the coffee shop chain that I'm in? Well, I... My it's first, one of three, right? My first instinct was uh, it was Starbucks. See the sort of the brickwork behind me there? It is. You can get a posh sausage sandwich where you are, I think, James. Possibly. I'm a vegetarian. I wouldn't know, but... You might be um, a it is. sandwich. You've got an yeah. iced coffee... I'm trying to think. I've got an iced coffee. I'm trying to think what the third branch is. So I've, I've got a, um, I've got, got a clue. It's my loyalty card. But it's a cafe Nero. <laughs> but what's the yes. third one? It's Costa. Costa. Oh, of course. Come on, oh, Nick, yeah. come on. Costa coffee, Costa bombshell, more like. That's <laughs> uh, what they say. Uh, they go, are you going to Starbucks? Starbucks bombshell, more like. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand humour. Um, so, how are you? So you're you're a film critic, right? Correct. So yes. How are you coping? Uh, how do you feel about cinemas at the moment? It's really weird because for years I've been doing this a long time. For years it was just because most films come out on Friday, okay. So for years my brain was just like Friday, Friday, Friday. I was just constantly thinking about the next Friday, the next Friday, what new movies are out. And you get half a dozen, a dozen films sometimes. It was just relentless. And then in whatever it was, end of March, April, lockdown, cinemas closed. Obviously, films just stopped coming out. And, and Fridays all of a sudden were just not a thing anymore for me for the first time ever in my career. And so it's just been really weird not having that relentless new release schedule. Um, stuff's coming out, obviously, and it's coming out now, a bit in cinemas that's coming out on, on streaming services. But, it, but, you know, nothing like it was. Um, so just having a break has been weird. Well, I would say you say never in your career, but I, I just know that when I was growing up, I used to always look forward to Fridays, uh, the, the, the new releases that were coming out on Fridays. And then, uh, and then specifically on Saturdays, I would watch movies, games and videos. And oh, then, yeah, what a show. 
I would get my dad to sort of like take me to uh, the local multiplex and we'd go and see Stargate or something, or Cool Runnings on a Sunday, on a Saturday afternoon. So like Fridays yeah. were always, even before I sort of like realised that how much I loved films were always a part of my life. I think yeah, I, mean, I guess it's the same oh. with music. You know, music was always Mondays. Now, now of course, it's Fridays again, I think. Um, but it was always new music Mondays and then new movies on Fridays. So but to, to sort of live your life as I have done, professional life, in that way, thinking about what's out next week, what's out next week. I mean, it's great, but it can be a little exhausting because you never really have a chance to enjoy what's out now. You're always thinking about what the next thing is. So one of the good things, I guess, about cinemas going quiet and the movie world calming down a bit over the months is we have just had a chance to reflect a little bit more um, than, than we would do in normal times. Sure. What's your favourite film? <laughs> oh, of all time? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a big, a, a big um, 80s, 90s fan, teen movie fan, so I'd normally go for Ferris Bueller's Day Off yeah. when I'm asked that question. Um, certainly the John Hughes movies I love, um, and uh, I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about Keanu Reeves shortly, things like Bill and Ted, you know, that era, mid to late 80s, early 90s stuff, clueless in the early 90s, that's the stuff I love. It's the stuff I grew up with. I mean, you're always going to have that affection for the era where you were a kid, aren't you? What, sure. what year were you born, James? I was born 75, so I think I'm older than you guys, but at the same time, you know, I was, I was, I remember Cool Runnings coming out, you know, I remember, what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, Stargate. Stargate, you know, that's all mid-90s stuff, isn't it? Early mid-90s stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, that, I think those kind of movies that you grow up with when you are 11, 12 years old, I mean, I was watching them on video, I was kind of, uh, um, video rental era, you know, and a lot of the time that's when I saw movies for the first time, just going down to Blockbuster and renting them rather than actually going to the cinema. A lot of films that I love, I still have never seen on the big screen. They're just films I saw on my old square TV, and there will always be that like that. What um, What do you think is um, What do you think is the best film? The be I mean, that's I mean, it's 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 an impossible question, really. I, I mean, I suppose really. <laughs> <laughs> Cool Runnings, obviously. That's the, the answer. By John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I suppose, you know, if you're kind of asking that of film experts, and they always have these polls, don't they? We asked 100 film experts what the greatest of all time is. I suppose you're looking for things like influence, you know, has a film influenced others? Has it changed cinema? Um, are we still talking about it now, even though it's 50 years old? Which is why things like Citizen Kane always gets mentioned. More recently, I suppose, something like Pulp Fiction, which completely changed the movie landscape, why that's always mentioned. So I suppose you have to think about older films that have influenced how everything is, is, has been since, um, which is why something like Citizen Kane is so often referred to as the greatest film ever made. Have you ever watched all of Citizen Kane? <laughs> yeah. It's not that long, is it? It's not like it's, you know, The, the Return of the King or something. I don't, I don't think it is that long. I've never got all the way through it. Um, I, I find it... But that's the same with 2001, Space Odyssey. I've never got all the way through that. In one oh, the, ending, the ending to that's the greatest bit. I think I've seen the ending, and I think I've probably seen the whole of 2001. I just have never seen yeah. it all in one go. I mean, it's what Stanley Kubrick would have wanted. Yeah, I think so. And, and to be honest, I've watched large portions of it on my phone. So uh, yeah, again, just, I mean, you know, this this was his dream when he set out to change cinema. He he dreamed that one day people would be watching his movies on a phone. It's yeah. funny that when you when you're right as like a film critic, you both are writing a personal 
criticism or yeah. you bring what your experience to the film that you're yeah. writing about, then you also yeah. are writing for other people to read it and to try and give them an idea of whether they might yeah. want to see it, right? So you are yeah. in both camps. You do have a, a foot in both worlds when you're reviewing things of what you think yeah. is objectively good versus your own taste. Yeah, and I suppose it depends on the outlet as well. I mean, when I do stuff on the radio, I used to be on Radio 1, now I'm on Radio 2, um, you, you're sort of a bit more of a personality there, you know, um, rather than anonymous film critic. So you bring a bit more of your own taste and personality into the review. But I also write reviews for magazines. You know, I write reviews for Hello! Magazine. Now, you know, Hello! Magazine, you're thinking, okay, who's going to read this? What kind of a person is reading this? What do I need to talk about? So when I write reviews for them, I'm talking a lot more about family films, about whether that movie is suitable for your children, because you know that there's going to be a lot of parents uh, with small children reading that magazine. So you just have to cater a little bit to whatever outlet you're talking on or, or writing for. But is there like um, is there a film that you've absolutely slated on uh, Radio Two, and then actually recommended in Hello Magazine? Because it's <laughs> <laughs> um, I would never go that far. And in, in both of those cases, actually, I only write I only review things or, or talk about things, write about things that I'm recommending anyway. So I'm not going to go on there and slate something and say it's terrible because we kind of there's already this kind of filter. You know, only the good stuff gets through. Um, but yeah, you certainly, you know, it's, if I'm going to talk about um, Trolls World Tour or something like that, <laughs> you know, then I have to accept, and that was a massive hit during lockdown, I have to accept yeah. that that's, that's perfect for a lot of kids who were, didn't know what to do, and a lot of parents who didn't know how to control their kids. Okay, I'll buy Trolls World Tour, stick it on, keep them quiet for a couple of hours. Is it a work of art? No, but it does its job. That's been one of the lockdown success stories, though, hasn't it? I think, yeah, it was, I, I think it was in the cinema just before lockdown, and then <laughs> it was just this huge thing that hasn't really left kind of... And it's kind, it's, kind of, it's kind of changing, you know, how things are going to be seen now, because, that, because it was so successful, all of the film companies are going, oh, hang on, well, if Universal Pictures did so well with Trolls World Tour, just going to streaming, going to video on demand maybe we should do the same with some of ours. It was almost like the litmus test, you know? And it paid off for Universal. And now, you know, we're hearing about Disney doing the same with Mulan, this live action remake of Mulan, that was meant to come out of cinemas. It was meant to be one of the big summer blockbusters at cinemas. And now they've said, oh, we'll stick it on Disney Plus, charge you $30 to watch it. That's how you're going to see it, you know? So the lockdown is, of course, affects people in so many ways. It's definitely affected cinema for... uh, easily for this year but i think in the long term as well what's the um what's the first cinema that you would uh, do you go to the cinema for fun anymore like <laughs> it's always like, fun Nick. it's always do, fun but do you like do you buy a ticket for something that isn't yeah. part of your schedule um yeah i do um obviously i haven't done anything like that for a while but yeah i'm in west london a lot of the time and so um the cinemas around there are the ones i go to you know i can't see everything nobody can see everything as a, as a professional, as a journalist. So there's stuff you want to catch up with or stuff you want to watch again. Um, so I don't do it a huge amount, but definitely do it. It's, I think it's important. You've got to remember how most people see movies, what they pay for movies, how much the popcorn costs, all that kind of stuff. You know, that's the experience. And you don't have that if you just live in your little critic bubble because you go to the, a private screening room, there's food laid on, there are no trailers, it doesn't cost you anything. You know, that's not a real movie experience, is it? No. Um, what is your, your favourite cinema? Yeah. 
And what is your favourite uh, cinematic experience? <laughs> like, like, they're two different things, but like, what is your yeah, favourite yeah. cinema? And what is, the, what, is the, uh, what is your greatest memory of going to a film and watching it? I mean, because um, we've like... got down at the moment, and yeah. I miss going to the cinema so much. And, um, and our show, one of the things that we don't generally talk to our, our guests about is stuff that they, that they really love. We end up just, just chatting to them. And it's, yeah. it's interesting to have someone that's also like a huge film fanatic on. And it's kind of like, yeah, what's, what's your great... It's someone that's seen over, I would say, probably, you've probably seen over 100 films. So for someone that's seen more than 100 films, what is your greatest cinematic experience that you've ever had? And what's your favourite cinema? Well, I, the, the, I like the cinemas in Nestor Square in London, and they change quite a lot, and they've certainly changed since I've been going, and they've put in new screens, you know, Empire, Leicester Square, sort of the flagship cinema um, in, in the West End of London, and they've changed to an IMAX screen. So things have changed over the years, but generally speaking, the atmosphere of the cinemas in Leicester Square in London is still really exciting to me, because that's where I first, when I first used to go to London as a kid, and just go as like a tourist, I was maybe 15 years old, I would migrate to Leicester Square to go to the cinemas and to experience the cinemas. You know, I grew up in Suffolk. You didn't have anything quite so glamorous and huge as those cinemas in Leicester Square. So I still really like those. I still think they have an atmosphere. Yeah. Um, but the, the kind of the flip side to that is in terms of experience, I also really like just like ramshackle, old-fashioned, idiosyncratic, crazy little cinemas, independent yeah. cinemas. Um, and I think probably my favourite experience, and this is, you know, it's so far away from a premiere in Leicester Square, but I was up in um, Cumbria, and it was the, I forgot the name of the town, so forgive me, but it's where Stan Laurel was born, okay, from Laurel and Hardy, Ulverston, right, Ulverston in, in Cumbria, and they have a Laurel and Hardy museum there. Now, when I went, to, to, I mean, don't think Victorian Albert Museum or, you know, <laughs> Natural History Museum, it's a long way from that, it's like a, uh, 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 you know, a, a couple of rooms looks a little bit like your uh, front room there, Nick. Actually, yeah, yeah sure, you know. sure. Yeah, um, um, let's say it's sort of uh, bohemian, um, and uh, <laughs> they say, "Yo, when you go in, I was the only one in there, just in this little this little museum." They said, "Do you want to watch a Lauren Hardy film?" Oh, like, brilliant! So I went into like a little screening room. So they had a, a home cinema set up. You know, it had the, the velour seats and everything, like a little mini cinema, but it had maybe uh, ten seats in it. And they just put on the DVD projector, the music box, which is the one where they're trying to get the piano up the steps. And it was just me sat there. It was like a Tuesday morning or something, watching this Laurel and Hardy movie in this tiny little cinema in this tiny little museum. I just thought this is, you know, it's so removed from the glamour and the glitz, but I'm probably enjoying this more than any premiere I've been to. Because, I mean, in a way, Laurel and Hardy part of their charm was kind of ramshackle. So you couldn't have a museum for Laurel and Hardy, which was really polished and fabulous. It mm. needed to be a bit run down and a bit rubbish. Um, rubbish in the nicest possible way. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it, so it completely fitted the moment. I absolutely loved it. Have you ever been to the Charlie Chaplin Museum in Elephant and Castle? Uh, no, I haven't. No, I mean, that's, like... That's, that's where he was born. Yeah, yeah, of course. And in, in East London as well, there's loads of Hitchcock stuff because that's where he was born. And London has this amazing movie heritage, isn't it? But uh, it's one of those things when you're in London working a lot, you never kind of do the tourist things. Yeah. Um, but, oh, but, yeah. So have you been then to the Charlie Chaplin Museum? 
I only went because um, I was uh, did an interview. Um, I was being interviewed about films there. Yeah. Ten, ten years ago, and I lived around the corner, and they said, Charlie Chaplin Museum, and you go, fine. But it's a similar sort of thing, where it's kind of like, yeah. it's right near to where he was born. I think it was in the workhouse where he grew up working. Yeah. And it's kind of like, yeah, it's got like a few velour seats, and then memorabilia stapled to the wall. And you go, yeah, yeah. it's great, yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like an educational Planet Hollywood. <laughs> oh my god i used to love planet hollywood back I in those days <laughs> those, those times when when i talked about coming to leicester square for the first time when i was a teenager I'd, you know if you know central london at all there used to be a planet hollywood very near leicester square mm. um so you do both and you know i was a film student i was a film fan my girlfriend at the time was a massive film fan and we thought that going to planet hollywood was some you know it was like well, a pilgrimage it's like well we have to do this because we are movie fans. It's like, it's on the map. It has to be done. Um, and really, it's just, it's just a burger bar, really, isn't it? Yeah. I think as a kid, I always felt like, if you go to Planet Hollywood, you're bound to see either, not all of them, I'm not greedy, but you're bound to see either Willis, Stallone or Schwarzenegger. They're bound to be there. One of them's going to be there that day. It can't be all their days off. You sort of imagine. I'm sure, I'm sure I saw press and stuff at the time of like Bruce Willis like flipping a burger and stuff. Yeah, exactly. and you go, oh my oh, yeah. god, he's going to be there. And actually, then you discover. Uh, I mean, I only discovered it, discovered it years later. Maybe everyone knew this, but essentially they were sort of paid to be the figureheads of Planet yeah. Hollywood. I don't even think they had any financial investment in it, really. You know, they were just there. They were just paid to be A-listers and probably paid an absolute fortune. I but, know that Schwarzenegger's mum donated the apple strudel recipe. Oh, really? <laughs> That's what they said on Aspel, but then... Yeah, oh, yeah, Aspel. I remember that Aspel. Well, that yeah, he quit after that. Yeah, because that's quite controversial, wasn't it? That Aspel interview, because people complained that it's ju- it was just a plug for Planet Hollywood. Yeah. You know, it was just like one long advert, rather yeah, than a chat show two-way interview. <laughs> yeah, but you uh, you got all three of them on just at the time they were opening a restaurant. What were you expecting? <laughs> and and the all, the, all three of them, that's, you know, they're such good... They're such good businessmen in that respect. You know, they know how to sell a product, especially Schwarzenegger. Um, and so, you know, that's all he could do. You can't really interview him normally and expect some kind of con- chatty conversation. All they, he can um, do is plug stuff. But they all, they, they all had... I mean, I really like Last Action Hero. Um, I've watched it again recently, and I do think it's one of the weirdest films that was ever made in the 90s. There's no <laughs> tone to it. There's, like, no consistent tone. It's two and a half hours... You think you know what, what the film is going in. It's just, and they yeah. don't do it the easy way. It's just a crazy film. Um, yeah. So that's weird. Uh, but he had Last Action Hero. Stallone had... Cliffhanger. Yeah, Cliffhanger and Demolition yeah. And then yeah. Bruce Willis just comes along with Striking Distance. You're like, Striking Distance? That is one of your worst films. That's <laughs> the, that's, it's like the bottom of the barrel for Bruce Willis. It's kind of like Stallone's got... His renaissance, you know, cliffhanger, demolition man. It was like, it was a joke. No wonder Bruce was talking about flipping burgers. I mean, I I am so sort of disappointed with Bruce because if you go into Tesco's or places like that, obviously they they have a load of DVDs there. I mean, some people clearly still buy brand new films on DVD, but there's so many Bruce Willis ones I've never heard of. And you know that, you know, Dolph Lundgren does that. You know that Jean-Claude Van Damme does that. But I never thought we'd see the day when Bruce is at that level. But, but that's what he does now. But Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren, they use those as opportunities to write and direct their own films. And Bruce Willis yeah. is 
you're just turning up to sort of play. It's kind of like, and it's bad enough that he's doing that with those sorts of films, but he did it with Die Hard 5, and it was just like, you yeah. know, mate, you fucked Die Hard, and you fucked yourself, and he charged five million for four days' work on Expendables 3, so they wrote him out of it and got Harrison Ford instead. You just like go, what the fuck are you doing? Six I know, I know. I don't, years ago. I, it's like how, how much money can you need, really? I mean, how... If he, he could stop working, I mean, he should have stopped working five years ago and we'd, we'd hold him in a lot, much higher regards than we do now because he's had five years of terrible straight-to-DVD movies. It's like, well, surely you don't have to work. You're Bruce Willis. You could just sit back, relax, and just enjoy your legacy. But he's still churning out this trash. It was quite nice seeing all of the pictures of him and his family and to me more in lockdown, mm. wearing identical pyjamas at, <laughs> at Easter. You go, I, he looks like he's very happy. I just yeah, don't well, I mean, reflect these films on us. No, I, I like the fact that he's happy, that they're still all one big happy family. But, and, you know, he's, he's very charming, isn't he? You know, he can be really charming, really charismatic in movies. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say so much about his interview skills. But um, obviously, we loved him. He was a major box office star for a reason. But it's, I don't know where it's gone. That's the other thing that he was promoting at, um, on Apple, was uh, his uh, blues album. The Return of Bruno. <laughs> he, he got out his harmonica and he did sort of like this harmonica solo. And it was like, oh, no. <laughs> and he got a tattoo. He's wearing overalls on Aspel, and, he, and right. he's got a tattoo on his chest, and he had to hang over it. No, come on, Nathaniel. I'm talking about Willis. I'm interested. Did, did you just watch this at the time, and you've remembered every detail, or have you watched it many times since? I loved it so much at the time. I was such a Schwarzenegger fan. It's actually the, uh, the hour of telly that got me into Stallone. I never really valued Stallone. And then after that, I started watching, I was just at the age where uh, I wasn't into boxing and I wasn't into war films. So I was never really into Stallone. And then, uh, as I say, like Cliffhanger, Demolition Man, Assassins, The Specialist, Judge Dredd. I was just at the right age for all of those Stallone films in the 90s. I was just like, oh my God, I think Stallone might actually, especially in the 90s, I think Stallone's output in the 90s was almost better than Schwarzenegger's, really. Um, yeah, I mean, he did some press last year for the latest Rambo film, yeah. and um, Rambo Last Blood. <laughs> and he, what, what was quite interesting is when I spoke to him is that uh, he, he considers himself a writer, first and foremost, mm -hmm. because, of course, he does write a lot of his scripts or has a lot of input, at the very least, into his scripts and has directed many of them as well. But that's how he thinks of himself, and that's how he sort of started out, really, and how he, what he wanted to do was be a writer mm -hmm. first. And it's, I think some people forget, I mean, this is obvious when you think about the kind of movies that he churns out, it's easy to forget that this guy is actually quite smart and can write a script. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he, he, he is filmmaking through and through, you know, he is passionate about it. And what? I think that's, Bruce might just kind of cruise through things, but... Um, I think Sly does really invest in stuff. Well, I think Bruce was a light comic, uh, sort of, he's more of like an entertainer, you know? Yeah. Uh, he started off on Moonlighting, and he took a lot of that into, I mean, um, he did Blind Date, and then Die Hard was a bit of an anomaly, and then he went back yeah. to doing sort of like a, stuff like that with Hudson Hawk, and Death yeah. Becomes Her. He's always been sort of like more of an entertainer than an action guy. Um, yeah. I think one of 
the lost masterpieces that we'll never get is Stallone's Edgar Allan Poe biopic, uh, where he's been working on it since the 70s. And he updates it every so often. At one point, yeah. um, he was trying to get... Um, who was he trying to get to be in it? Was it Nicolas Cage? When Nicolas Cage oh, wow. was younger... There was kind of like these, this new generation of people that he was trying to kind of like get as the lead. But basically, you've got, he's got these really like sausage fingers and yeah. uh, he's kind of fairly tacky. And when you look at stuff like Last Blood, you go, I don't even know what your politics are. But, um, but his passion project, one of his favourite artists and authors in, uh, that's ever lived was Edgar Allan Poe. And yeah. who's kind of like this kind of gothic, dark, interesting, tragic American sort of figure. And, uh, like, Vincent Price was this huge kind of, like, icon for Edgar Allan Poe. And then you've got Stallone, who's, like, Mr. Explosions and Vietnam and uh, Rocky and Rambo and all this other stuff. And he's kind of, like, deep down in his heart, he wanted to be Vincent Price. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he's maybe he feels torn between. I don't know if this is true. I'm just speculating, but maybe there's that thing whereby he knows what gets bums on seats. He knows what people know him for, but yeah, deep down in his heart, he wants to be the artist. He wants to be the writer. He wants to make the the um, the, the biopic. But is are people going to fund him for that? He can get funding for another Rambo movie, but can he get funding for anything else? I, I would also no say no one's going to fund it. <laughs> I would, I would say if you're, but like, I mean that's interesting because he because he took enough of a risk when he did uh, Rocky Balboa, and then he used yeah. that to do Rambo, Rambo, and then he used that to do Expendables. If you're made, if you've made, I don't know how much money Stallone has made. I know it costs like one and a half grand to meet him and get a photo with him. Yeah, I know. Yeah, money, and you've had a dream to make a film for forty-five years. Wouldn't you just take 10 million and go, it's going to be a low budget 10 million indie film about Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah. yeah. You never, I never, I mean, money, that kind of money, it's like when we're talking about Bruce, you know, how much money does he need? And then you hear about Sloan doing those meet and greets. Al Pacino's another one who does those meet and greets. Uh, and they listen, they get paid a lot of money. If someone wanted to offer me that much money for a meet and greet, maybe I'd say yes. But that's because I don't have that much at the moment. But if you're Al Pacino or, or, or Bruce Willis or, or Sly, don't you kind of have enough? Do you need to demean yourself to be getting a thousand quid here and there just for shaking someone's hand? I don't really understand it. But, I, don't, um, I don't believe it. There's also, did you see the Edgar Allan Poe one with John Cusack in it? The, the Raven. Raven. No, I never yeah. saw it. I saw, I saw a trailer for it. Yeah, it was actually quite good. And weirdly, Cusack, who I'm a big fan of, you know, and, and very much that era I mentioned at the beginning, the sort of the 80s teen movies where he started out. He's another one who now ends up in those Tesco straight DVD action movies. <laughs> like, how is John Cusack doing this? Because it's not like he was ever really an action hero anyway. But no. that seems to... Be, and I don't think he's playing the action hero in these movies, but he is appearing in these movies. And it's you just great. wonder how, how Cusack and Malkovich and all these people, it's basically the stars of Con Air, how the three stars of Con Air have ended up doing all these movies that never come out on the big screen and just end up in the supermarket DVD shows. But I think that's because of sort of like um, the death of like the mid the mid budget movie. Yeah. And the non franchise movie. And they've gone like we made Con Air, we can still get paid to we can still get paid work by making 
sort of like action. What was that film that John Co- uh, that John Malkovich was in with um, about the oil? With Bruce Willis. No, oh, right. It was the oil oh, rig one, and I think it had Mark Wahlberg in it. Was it? Oh yeah, Deepwater Horizon. Yeah, that was sort of really good, but it's like John Malkovich just popped up, and it's kind of like normally yeah. if John Malkovich was in a film, that would be like. The, the headline, I'd be like, right, John Malkovich is in that, I'd see that. I was watching this film on a plane and he just sort of like popped into it and it's kind of like, oh wow, that's... It's probably, like, all this stuff's probably an interesting segue to talk about Keanu Reeves because he hasn't oh, yeah. really, like, he's had ups and downs, but yeah. he's someone who has had a 30 year plus career and is still is still huge you know it's it's yeah it's probably bigger than ever actually last year really was a, a a defining year for him i think with the third john wick movie with the part in toy story 4 duke kaboom and also in that netflix uh, film always be my maybe where he had a cameo that kind of exploded onto twitter and became you know more than the movie itself his cameo um so yeah i, I think he's there's certainly been eras years where he's headed towards that straight to DVD territory and some of them like there's movies like replicas and things like that which aren't you know a, a sort of things that will you just find on a streaming service that never came out in the cinema but he's managed to then lift himself up I mean John Wick resurrected him as a as a as a cinema star that that movie I remember seeing the, the sort of the um, I think the invite to, to, to go and see it from the film company and I just thought Keanu, oh, it's another Keanu Reeves kind of average action movie that will just disappear. Um, what did I know? You know, it, it really relaunched him all over again. And he's brilliant. I love those movies. So, uh, yeah, the longevity. I mean, the guy's mid-50s now. So there's, there's 40, pretty much 40 years of movies. Um, that, that is special. It's easy to write him off. We take him for granted a bit. We always kind of laugh a bit about his acting abilities. But 40 yeah. years at the top... I think that's I think that's really weird about him as well because we always talk about is it River's Edge? Yeah, yeah, what a great and film! He's great in it, like yeah, a great performance. Like it almost like it's inconceivable, inconceivable to uh, <laughs> to to work out that his performances like later on in that decade were kind of well. I suppose he did three very similar performances in a row, where he did Bill and Ted, he did um, I Love You to Death. Yeah. And he did Parenthood. And it's like, yeah. bang, bang, bang. It's almost the same character in each of those films. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, that's Keanu Reeves. But when he did River's Edge, he was incredible in that film. Um, yeah, and, and, a, and a great film and a film that I don't think is talked about enough, but hugely influential. If we're talking about earlier, we said, you know, the greatest film of all time, and I think it's through influence and longevity. Um, that influenced a lot of filmmakers. You know, that was like a, a mid-'80s movie that felt like it should be something from the 90s kind of slacker grunge era mm-hmm. um, really, really predated that, that, that movement. So it's ahead of its time and he's great in it. And th- those comedy roles, you know, again, people forget that when we first got to know him, he, we thought of him as a comedy actor because of Bill and Ted and I Love You to Death and things like that. Um, and so that changed when he went to um, uh, Point Break and Speed. It was like, what? Keanu Reeves doing this? How weird is that? You know, it would be, I guess it would be like Timothy Chalamet or someone doing it now, you know. You like, think, well, he's kind of, he, he's not the guy to be an action hero. But they were sort of like stepping stones, weren't they? Because with, yeah. with, with at least in Point Break, he was a surfer dude, you know. Yeah, he's just yeah, like, yeah. He learned how to surf and it's just like, oh yeah, that makes sense that, that Ted has learned how to yeah. surf. 
when it, speed was the real one where you go, he's what? It's Die Hard on a bus. What? Yeah, yeah, and he shaved all his hair off. You know, exactly. and it was just like, the hair felt yeah. almost like the long hair is comedic. Uh, Ted, yeah. and that with short hair, he's he's now an action lean action star. Yeah, and it worked really well. You know, I, I think. I mean, that that's a film that people still love. I still love it, and it's still. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's still brilliant. Speed. Um, yeah, I, speed. I mean, I went to cinema to see that with my mum. You know. Yeah. And fucking hell, it was that we we both enjoyed it equally, you know? It's just like, Speed is such a great film. Oh, my God. That's all I've got to say about it, really. That's all you need to say about it. It's so it's so streamlined and simple. You know, it's not about... Like, we don't know anything about his character, really. He's just he's just this kind of bloke, just this saviour type, you know, who, who stands by Sandra Bullock and saves everybody. But there's so little about any of those characters, really, uh, because that's not the point of it. The point of it is just that relentless action, that relentless tension and edge of your seat stuff. And so it is a really simple, streamlined movie. It's so good. Uh, was it uh, d- uh, written by Graham Yost, who went on to write Broken Arrow, directed by uh, Jan de Bon, who was the, yeah. the DOP on Die Hard. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. starring Sam. had the credibility, Bono. didn't it? Fresh off Demolition Man. Uh, it was such a... Yeah, anyway. Dennis Hopper. Oh, Jeff yeah. Daniels. My mum was yep. in love with Jeff Daniels. And it was just yep. like, oh, yes. Oh, what I mean, that, that was a good era for Jeff, you know, because Dumb and Dumber must have been either the same year or very close to that as well. Yeah. And so there's another... I mean, there's a, let's, let's be more Jeff Daniels as well, I think, should be the next book. I mean, there's a guy who just has this amazing range and um, is completely taken for granted. His, um, his uh, spoilers, but his death scene in Speed, where yeah. that, that whole, oh, fuck, look on his face is just, it's, it's oh, like, it's so good. <laughs> what a film. Um, so yeah. you've in this book called Be More yeah. Piano, right? And it's obviously, yeah. uh, it's, um, it's sort of like a tongue-in-cheek self-help guide using the films of yeah. piano. But you obviously haven't got there through the fact that, you, you hate Keanu Reeves. You obviously love it. <laughs> no, and it's, you know, it's, it is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. It's a lot less tongue-in-cheek than I intended it to be, actually. When I started it out, the original title was just going to be, whoa. <laughs> 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 because it was more just, a, it was more, I suppose, at the beginning, just a, a joke about his, his minimalism and how we, we give him this kind of credit for being a guru. Um, whereas actually... Maybe he's not. Maybe he just doesn't really say much, and we just <laughs> interpret that as being a guru. Um, but then the more I wrote, the more I thought, you know what? Actually, the stuff that he does, the stuff that he says, the messages in his movies, these are good things. You know, if, for example, Speed. I mean, listen, it's an action movie. It is what it is. But it's ultimately a film. That guy's so dedicated in that movie. He's, he's, and I love that line where Sandra Bullock says, you didn't leave me, you know. Oh, you never left me, whatever it was. And you just think that is what the film is about. It's about utter dedication. And he has that in his films and in his life. He's dedicated to a lot of things, dedicated to helping people, to charity work, to, to um, uh, art, uh, you know, art stuff. He's with his partner, um, dedicated to his motorbike company. You know, and I just think that the dedication of the guy to just being a good bloke yeah, is I something think- that's really honourable. I think it is, and I think he's always had that, like, it, throughout the 90s. I, I think that was his thing. Even when people wrote him off a bit, I think he always had an idea that he was likeable 
for a lot of reasons why people criticised him. The idea, yeah. talking about speed, the reason he didn't do speed two, he'd already booked a tour with his band. Yeah. Yeah. Star, and he wanted yeah. to honour those dates. Yeah. And exactly. It's, like, it's not going to get huge audiences. It's got a place, very small venues. It's not I saw them. Room. And yet it, Glastonbury. Oh, oh yeah, they were bottles, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Well, I was quite a distance away, but um, so my <laughs> bottles didn't even reach the stage. <laughs> but um, they were fine. They were fine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, totally honourable. You know that, and that's. I think then, which was would have been the sort of late nineties, it was easy to take the mick out of it. Mm. Now, of course, we're in a different era, and we talk a lot about uh, you know mindfulness and things like that, and and authenticity and all these buzzwords. And actually, that's what he was showing back then. He was showing that he's not into the bullshit of Hollywood. He's into just being himself, doing his own thing, following his own path, being true to himself. Um, and so now, actually, I think that fits in a lot more with the era we're in, in 2020, than, than it did. It looked a bit weird in 1998 or whenever it was. Uh, but now I think we all go, well, good on you. You know, don't just get get on that kind of, that production line and just, you know, just actually take a breath, take a breather yeah, and, they, and be yourself. The era when he was doing My Own Private Idaho, I remember there was lots of speculation that both he and River Phoenix were gay. And his thing was that he would never comment on it because he didn't see yeah. that would be a criticism. Why would I, why would I comment on something or make it a negative yeah. when I wouldn't see that as a negative thing? So I won't address yeah. those rumours at all. And it's yeah. that sort of thing which now feels, again, really honourable, really smart. And it's not something which is, he's not making a big deal of it. He's actually just stepping away from it and says, you can yeah. say what you like about me. I don't see, I wouldn't see that as a negative if you want to say that about me. And it's that sort of removing that question that almost, I guess, sort of probably at the time only kind of ignited more of those rumours. But it was just, but what he's actually saying is absolutely reasonable. And the correct answer is that, why would you care if I was or wasn't? It's that sort of, and he was doing that in the early 90s. Yeah, and I suppose what made it weirder is that, that he was taking over from those guys that we just talked about, Sly and Arnie. You know, he was becoming the new face of action at that point, whereas they were looking a little old and tired. And so we expected more of the same. We expected their kind of love of the spotlight, you know, by, by flipping burgers at Planet Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And that just wasn't his thing. You know, he was more for, he was from a different generation. And he was more in tune with River Phoenix, with Johnny Depp, who at that point was still very much an indie star, Ethan Hawke, all those kind of actors who, you know, weren't about the, hey, look at me, everybody. You know, I'm, I'm all about capitalism and big muscles and all that kind of stuff. You know, he was much more modest than that. Um, I, think that's, I think that's the thing about Kenry is everyone, uh, if people are criticising him, they criticise his acting. Um, yeah. Not only am I convinced that, um, not only am I not convinced that he's a bad actor, um, I don't think he's great in everything. I think it all depends on how you use him. But um, I think that why does he have to be a good actor? He's a, he's a movie star. He's, exactly. he's what I... He, I would go and see a Keanu Reeves film for Keanu Reeves in much the same way that you'd go and see a Schwarzenegger film for Schwarzenegger. And no one ever yeah. said Schwarzenegger's a great actor. Like Keanu Reeves is... It, it, he, it's not about the acting, it's about uh, the performance and what's kind of like what you see in him. And um, yeah, I think, and a lot of the time, his biggest films or his most popular films aren't my favourite. I've never been a huge fan of Matrix, never really liked the first John Wick film, although I love John Wick too. Um, 
I, I think he's incredible. And I think some of the times when his acting is really brought up to the forefront, it's stuff when he was being used by Francis Ford Coppola to sell tickets to teenage girls to see an Anthony Hopkins film. Um, uh, and Kenneth Branagh to sell tickets to see a fucking Kenneth Branagh film. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, like, of course, Keanu Reeves isn't going to be as good as Denzel Washington, Emma Thompson, Kenneth Branagh, fucking Michael Keaton. You know, this is like if you put him against all of those ensemble casts in those two movies, it was an unfair. He was obviously at a disadvantage, but um, I think he probably learnt from that and was just like, I don't want to play that game then. And he's never been afraid to do it either. You know, he's, the, the variety, actually, if you look at his filmography, the variety of stuff on there, we might immediately think of John Wick and The Matrix and sci-fi blockbusters and action movies. But there's so much variety, the romantic comedies, cameo roles as well. You know, he does a lot to help out filmmakers just by getting his name in the cast. They'll get the budget, even if he's only in a couple of scenes. Um, like that, that movie I mentioned earlier from Netflix last year, Always Be My Maybe. You know, which is Ali Wong movie, which is, is really good fun. He's a cameo in it. But that got that movie so much press because he was in it and he was happy to help out. Didn't he do another Netflix cameo film a few years ago about... Wasn't the film about eating disorders? Um, yes, he did. Um, called... Uh, this is why it's handy to have Google, isn't it? Yeah, he played a doctor in that. Um and was actually really good. I think he, I think, because he played a doctor in Something's Got to Give as well, and I think he's a good doctor. He's got that kind of kindly bedside <laughs> I mean, manner. Oh, if ever I got yeah. ill, I'd want Keanu Reeves to sort of look after me. Dangerously yeah. handsome he was in, wasn't he? Yeah. He's, in, he's the kind of love interest for Uma Thurman, isn't he? In, yeah, in... To, the, to the Bone is the name of that movie. To the Bone, that's right. Yeah, and he's What's really it? not in it very much, but What's again, you know, just by putting his name to it, then he, he gets it made. Um, that was Dangerous Liaisons. That was on telly. Dangerous Liaisons. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was very early in his career. But again, you know, period piece, romantic drama uh, with John Malkovich before he got involved in straight-to-DVD action movies. Again, I, I never think of that because I don't think he comes out of that film quite yeah. uh, quite as badly as he comes out of Dracula. And, no. Um, uh, much to do about nothing. Have well, you ever I, seen the film? Yeah. Have you ever seen the film Knock Knock? Yeah, I love Knock Knock. That is a crazy. Lat- that is a latter day eccentric Nicolas Cage Keanu Reeves yeah. performance. I think. Yeah. I mean, Nicolas Cage isn't in it, but he's channeling Nicolas Cage in that film. Yeah, and it's Eno Roth who made it, and it's a it's a, a remake, isn't it, of a seventies one? But it's it's completely exploitative. Mm. Um, but there's something about it's. I mean, that movie is all about him being seduced. And actually, you see that in quite a lot of his films. You certainly see it in Dangerous Liaisons. You see it in Dracula as well. He has this thing that women and guys sometimes as well just want to sort of ruin him. <laughs> you know. But that's a movie that does use the persona of him being a nice guy, right? That yeah. yeah. Such a, so it's almost like using him like you'd use James Stewart or something. But he's got yeah. such an idea now of being this... He's everyone's ultimate nice guy. Everyone on the internet has decided he's yeah. he's a great guy, and I believe he is. That's it. I don't think yeah. it, I don't think it's a, a falsehood or it's an image he's created or cultivated. I think it's actually he is like. Yeah. That. And and you speak to people about it, people who co-starred with him, you know, and they they you can tell when if you ask someone, oh, what was it like working with person A or B? You can tell when they're bullshitting, right? Because they use stock phrases. Um, uh, but with him, you know, they're genuine. They just go, he's, he is just a nice bloke. What you see is what you get. I don't know what we'll say. 
you know um so uh I mean, every day I, I sort of look online and think, oh, please don't let there be a bad story about Keanu Reeves because, you know, because everybody seems to be there's something horrible happening. Um, and so it, think, would, um, it would have awful effects on the sales of your book. As well. <laughs> I know, exactly. It's purely for financial reasons. Um, but, but, you know, as a fan, you just think, oh, he's the last person I look up to. He's the last person. I don't want any more of my heroes ruined, you know. Um, but I just don't, you know, I... Fingers crossed, and I, I just don't think it's going to happen because he has a, a politeness and a gentlemanly quality, and he's open-minded and all the wonderful things um, that we should all aspire to be. Of course, your book, Nick, uh, "Be More Spacey." That that tactic. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's timing, really. Timing. Yeah. Yeah. Did you rewrite it as "Be More Christopher Plummer"? Well, I hadn't even heard of Kevin Spacey until uh, that uh, thing he did a couple of Christmases ago. I oh, thought, yeah. what a performance. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, it was like a Bond villain. Do uh, <laughs> you have a favourite Keanu Reeves movie? Uh, I mean, it's it, like I said, the variety is huge. So there's sort of one for every mood, isn't there? I do go back to Point Break a lot. I mean, Point Break is just one of the great action movies. And I love, the thing I love about him in that is that sort of um, pull that, that he has to deal with. You know, on the one hand, he's the cop, straight-laced, rookie, um, wants to play by the rules. And then when he meets Bodhi, Patrick Swayze's character, he's pulled in the opposite direction. You know, that, the, the surfer lifestyle, the dangerous lifestyle, the extreme sports lifestyle. And I love that tension in his character, where, which way is he going to go? Like you said, you know, um, the kind of, is he going to be straight action movie leading man Keanu, or is he going to go back to his kind of surfer dude roots? Um, so that, that one... The surfing is great, the action is great, but I also just love what the character has to go through. Um, so I often return to that. Uh, and, you know, the John Wick ones, I remember I've seen all of them more than once. And I did the trilogy in, like, two days. Um, I think two in one day, and then the next morning I watched the third. And I just love them. I just think they are ridiculous, but the style is second to none. And that's really what makes them. I mean, the, the action is great, Keanu is great. Halle Berry, whatever, but they've decided to actually give them an identity to make them not just another revenge movie by creating this world, which is fascinating, creating the the, the style, the set design, the production design. They they're really stamping it with with uh, a unique quality that just lifts it above all the other revenge movies that are out there. And that fight on the steps in John Wick Two is just one of the best of all time uh, movie fights, I think. Yeah, you know, and this guy, he, he, you know, he, at that point, I guess he would have been 50 or the early 50s, who is, of course, he's not doing every stunt, but he's still committing to training, to learning these moves. Chad Stahelski, he directed those films, he's long-time stunt guy, and he's worked with him many times. And he said, I wasn't going to let Keanu just do the moves that he did in The Matrix. I wanted to, him to learn a whole new martial art. I think it's more jujitsu actually, in, uh, in John Wick. So he had to learn a completely different martial art. Um, and I love the fact that he still wants to do that, that he's still committed enough to, to challenging himself and not just taking easy money and easy roles. And of course, um, talking of lockdown and VOD and all of that stuff, yeah. Bill and Ted 3 is coming out in the autumn, is it? Well, um, it's in the UK, it's still end of August. Uh, in the States, it's early September. 
uh, with a sort of dual VOD and cinema release in the UK at this point. Um, they haven't actually confirmed. I suspect it will just be cinema. Um, but you know, like all of these, it's it's open to change at the last minute. You know, I've I've sort of said certain films are coming out on certain dates enough times over recent weeks to know that um, that's a mistake because they always change. But in theory, it's out very soon, um, which is why I wanted the book out. You know, in August because um, Keanu is 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 around. He's doing press. You know, he was at Comic Con a couple of weeks ago, uh, and and Bill and Ted is in theory imminent. Yeah. And the second trailer for it was much better than the first trailer. Yeah, I think it looks. I think it actually looks good. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited as well. You know, and if they play up to their age and play up to them now, just being middle-aged dads and all the things that come with that, middle-aged dads who are still teenagers at heart. That that's funny. You know, I'm up for that. That's me. I mean, I'm not a dad, but I'm a middle-aged guy who's still a teenager at heart. You know, I'm sure we all are, right? Um, and so that's something that I think will will appeal to a lot of people. That's going to be. Uh, fun to watch. And Kevin Smith, who did a load of stuff with him at Comic-Con, um, uh, said, you know, genuinely, he said, genuinely, I think this is a brilliant, brilliant film. And it's not just the gags. It's It has a heart, too, which is very important. Yes, but I don't believe anything that Kevin Smith tells me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I've seen Kevin Smith's recent films, and, you know, they're not, they're not perhaps, they don't quite live up to the potential that he showed in the 90s. However, you know, he's he's a nice guy. He knows a lot about movies, so um, I'm going to go with him on this one. Sure. Okay. Cool. Um, well, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for coming on our show. Uh, your yep. book is called uh, Be More Keanu. Um, yep. And uh, are you doing film reviews on the radio at the moment? Yeah. Um, so um, on the radio too, Joe Wiley, who back in the day I used to work with on Radio One, um, and because uh, we're now old, we're on Radio Two. <laughs> before you go James you're just going to play yeah. a game now very quickly oh let's do it yeah 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 this game is called better or worse and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before based entirely on my own opinions to score points right so I have to sex you yes exactly right okay yeah. with John Travolta but is John Cusack better or worse than John Travolta worse better I think he is better Wow! <laughs> is Joan Cusack better or worse than Joan Cusack? I love Joan Cusack. I love her, um, but I think she—I think she's either equal or worse. So I'd say worse. I think she's better. I love Joan Ooh. Cusack. Yeah. Joan Collins better or worse than Joan Cusack? Worse. 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 Correct. Yeah. Alyssa Joan Hart better or worse than Joan Collins? Worse. I, I see where this is going. Um, better. Worse. Oh, really? Kevin Hart, better or worse than Melissa Joan Hart? Better. 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 Kevin Costner, better or worse than Kevin Hart? Better. Worse. Better. Okay. Kevin Spacey, sorry, Kevin Kevin Spacey, better or worse than Kevin Costner? (laughs) Oh, well, uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, are we talking acting or are we talking other things? I mean, he has to be worse. I can't say better. Kevin Bacon, better or worse than Kevin Spacey? Better. 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 Andrew McCarthy, better or worse than Kevin Bacon? Worse. Uh, yeah, worse. Worse, but the high card. Melissa yeah. McCarthy, better or worse than Andrew McCarthy? <laughs> oh. <laughs> better. Oh, better. Uh, yeah, I'd go better. Better, I think, yeah. Yeah. That was great, James. What's the score, Natalie? Seven! Seven! Oh, that, James. That, yeah, that's Never mind. Really? Never mind. <laughs>
<laughs> you tried. Uh, you scored a seven. That means you're not as good as Jen Bristol or Jason Manfred with ten. Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine. Susie Dent and Magical Bones with eight. But you are better, as good as Henry Normal, Johnny Vegas. Uh, and I'm, I'm being shouted at to do the game. Done the game. <laughs> if anything, we're ahead of schedule. Um, so, yeah, you're equal with Henry Norman and Johnny Vegas. Uh, yeah, but that is seventh, which is last place at the moment. Oh, dear. Well, you see, a lot of those guys um, are comedians, right, as you are. So they must know you intimately from the no. scene. No, not no. really. No, not really. <laughs> he's, not met, he's not met any of them before. No. <laughs> Uh, okay, fair enough. I was just not very good. Sorry, that's that's poor. That's being a poor <laughs> loser. Uh, that's a shame that you've ended a very nice hour. I know. Uh, see, Keanu wouldn't do that, would he? He'd be gracious. Uh, lashing out, he would have taken it. Um, yeah. Right, that was lovely. Thank you for talking to us. Bye, Thanks, you're welcome. See you. Be more Keanu. That's out now in shops. Thank you for coming on, and we're going to end now with Billy Idol. Speed. 